All right. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Psalms. Go specifically to the 139th Psalm. So it might be easier to start from the back of Psalms and work your way forwards. All right. Psalm 139. How is everyone tonight? Warm? Warmer than it is outside, right? Yeah. Oh, this is a stand that's really short, isn't it? Close enough. That's all right. 139th Psalm. I'm excited to open this up with you tonight and uh, do my best to be uh, to the point and be uh, a little bit brief this evening so that we can uh, get on our way, um, especially with the roads being as they are. So uh, let's jump right into the text here. Um, Psalm 139. And uh, let's go ahead. I want to read through the first six verses. Um, We'll spend time um, walking through the passage and we'll get a good feel for um, the intent of the author. But we'll read through the first six verses, have a quick word of prayer, and then jump right in. So let's go ahead. Let's start in verse number one. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain unto it. Let's pray, Father. We're grateful uh, that you have searched, you have known us. And even tonight as we open up your word, I pray that you would help us to be able to tune out the distractions that may be around us. Um, Lord, even here tonight, I, I know that in an audience and a group this size, that there are many needs that are represented, and I know it's easy to carry those into a time like this, whether it be financial or health-related or relational, whatever it may be. I pray that for a moment you would help us here to tune in and focus in on your word, and I pray that you would help as we study your word tonight. I pray that you would help us to understand how you uh, translate into these circumstances, these situations. I pray that you would tonight quiet our hearts and calm our minds so that we may uh, jump into your word, that we may see you more clearly um, than we did before opening it. Father, I just pray that you bless our time together. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, here in Psalm 139, um, this is a really fascinating passage. We're going to break it down. We're going to kind of walk through. We're, really, we're going to cover the whole chapter, and it's, uh, it's a really, really powerful, uh, powerful chapter, passage of Scripture that we have. Um, as we come into this text, uh, what we're going to find is we're going to find a psalm that really speaks to us and relates to us emotionally before uh, it speaks to us rationally. There are a lot of pictures used in the psalms. There are a lot of illustrations used, a lot of metaphor, a lot of things like this. We're going to talk about, we're going to see what is, that, what, is it ta- what is David actually describing as he writes these things, because David writes in a very emotional way. Before we even come into this chapter specifically, um, let me ask a quick, couple quick questions. How many of you guys have ever played Follow the Leader? Follow the leader. You ever played follow the leader as a kid? Um, how many of you guys, when you played follow the leader, there are certain people that you liked to follow and certain people that you were like, I'm going to sit this one out. Anyone else? Uh, we're picky about who we choose to follow, aren't we? Uh, maybe Simon Says. Maybe there's the person that played Simon Says, and they just got up, and they did a great job, and they every once in a while they'd throw a curveball at you, but, you know, they were fair. And Then there was the kid that was like, you're out. No, I saw you. No, I said do this instead. No, I, and there's just the kid that there's, they were so obnoxious, you didn't want anything to do with them. If they said they were the leader, you're like, I'm sick. I'm going to go see a nurse. I don't know. I, I don't want to be here because you're a terrible leader. I don't want to follow that kind of person. 
Even as adults, a lot of times that translates to us, right? There are certain people that we're willing to follow. We're willing to say, this person has my best interest. This person is capable. Therefore, I'm willing to accept uh, following after to to, uh, jump in line with what they're trying to accomplish. Um, Well, what we're going to find here is that God is actually calling David to follow him. But if you're like David and if you're like me, um, sometimes following God is easier said than done. And so David really jumps to this in a very emotional way. David just attacks this problem and he goes to God and he begins to meditate on, begins to pray to God about the characteristics that God has. God, who who are you? You're asking me to follow after you. You're asking me to obey you. God, who are you? And so as David goes through this, we really find an eloquent description of who God is to us. Let's look here at verse number one. Verse number one really just opens up this prayer. We see it's a prayer because David starts with, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. How many of you guys have ever searched for something, right? We've all searched for something. How many of you guys ever you lose your keys? Anybody lose your keys? Cell phone? Um, wallet? I mean, you name it, right? We've probably lost it. Uh, and it's amazing how many times we lose things. Yesterday, I was looking um, for, I spent a lot of my time looking for pacifiers, um, hair ties, like, I mean, all kinds of, anything that belongs to small children or little girls, I spend time looking for because I have small children and a couple little girls, right? Um, so the, the boys still use pacifiers, and so um, they're uh, walking around the living room, they're kind of teething, and so our twin boys uh, are walking around the living room with their pacifiers. Um, Ezra thinks it's a lot of fun, um, one of the twins thinks it's a lot of fun to have his pacifier, then to steal his brother's pacifier, then to lose his brother's pacifier. Um, I mean, if you have siblings, that probably sounds like a fun game to you too. So he goes around, and so every, every night or every time for a nap, we have to go around, and we're not looking for Ezra's pacifier because it's probably in his mouth. We're looking for his brother's pacifier that he has decided to ditch somewhere. And so last night, I'm picking up blankets, and I'm shaking out blankets. I'm moving pillows. I'm dumping out toys. I'm combing through toy boxes. I'm, I'm looking wherever you can imagine this pacifier might be, down into couch cushions. I'm just I'm looking for this pacifier. All right, anyone want to take a guess at where I found the pacifier? You're not going to guess, I'll just tell you. We have, a, we have a basket in our living room for shoes. And of course, the pacifier was in the shoe basket. I'm like, good job, guys. Yeah, that's where things that go in your mouth go, absolutely. So if they're sick, you'll know why. Um, <laughs> So this is, this is life in the world, right? We're always searching for, we're looking for things. Sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes we're, there's this angst within us, we have to find this, that, whatever. But we're, we're constantly searching. Sometimes we find what we're looking for. Hopefully we find what we're looking for, right? Other times we don't necessarily find what we're looking for. But what we find is this, this passage opens up, David says, Oh Lord, you have searched me. When God searches... How does God search? Does God search in a haphazard way? Does God search in a superficial way? God searches in a perfect way. And so the results of God's searching, David introduces, begins the whole psalm with this. The results of God's searching is that God has searched and he knows. He has searched and he knows. So as we jump into this, we're going to look at three character traits of God, three traits of God that David demonstrates to us. And we're going to, at the end of this, we're going to wrap it in and we're going to say, put a nice little bow on it. How does this apply to my life? And so the first trait of God that we see in this chapter is we see that God knows. 
God knows. And you may say that seems redundant or that seems obvious. You know, God, of course, God knows. But when we look at this, let's, let's really dig into, I want to press into what does God actually know here? What does he actually know here? Verse number two, David begins to expound. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Think about this. God knows every time that you sit down and that you stand up. Okay, so literally, I think this is both literal and metaphorical. He knows every time that you sit down, every time you stand up. There's a couple of things going on here. First of all, God knows the insignificant things that you do. God sees the little things that you do. God doesn't just see, oh, these are the major accomplishments. God doesn't know you just like someone would know you off of a resume, all right? Because how many guys had to write a resume before, right? It's, it's so like, you're trying to take everything you've done for like a period of, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years of your life and condense it into two pieces of paper, right? So you're like, here are the highlights. And then you read it and you're like, I don't even know this person, right? Like this doesn't make, this isn't, I mean, yes, it's me, but it's not, right? And that's not the version of you that God knows. Is God aware of those things? Absolutely. But that's not the limit of God's knowledge of you. Sometimes I think when we think of God's knowledge of us, we can think of it as being like, oh, yeah, if I stood before God, I'd be like, oh, yeah, your name's that, right? No, that's not how God knows us. Because remember, God has searched us. And even more significantly, what I think David is painting here is he's saying, you've known my, my, my downsitting, my uprising. It's this. Uh, when we sit down, this is, this is speaking of, this is speaking of our, our, our private life. This is, this is you when you, you sit down at the desk, uh, you sit down at home. This is when you're ready to lie down. This is, this is your, your private times, the quiet moments. Most of our personal conversations we have sitting down, don't we? Over dinner, over whatever it may be. He's saying, I know you in private, but I also know you're uprising. The times that you stand up and that you do something that's recognized, the times that you uh, perform, the times that you have these accomplishments that you would write as the accomplishments in your life, many times those are things that are done right. Those are standing up. Those are things in front of others. And so God is saying, hey, David, I know the times when you were hiding in the caves running from Saul. David, I know the times where you were lonely. You thought no one wanted anything to do with you. David, I know the times that you felt rejected. You felt hopeless. That You thought no one was your friend. I, I, I was there for you. Then he says, David, you know what? I was there when you stood before the entire nation of Israel. I was there when you were crowned king. I was there when you won your victories, when you killed Goliath. I was there for all of those moments. David, I know you. And David praying to God, he says, God, I know you know me. You know everything about me. There's nothing that, there's no time in my life that's hidden from you. Watch the end of this verse, the second part of verse two. He says, thou understands my thought afar off. He knows the thoughts that you have before you even think them. Before the thing that even causes you to think the thought, God knows that thought, right? Like, I mean, there's no thought that you've ever had. Think about this. There's no thought that you've ever had that surprised God. Could you imagine living a life in which there is no such thing as being caught off guard? How many of you guys have been caught off guard today, right? Like, we get caught off guard all the time. Things catch us by surprise. Someone throws a wrench into this. We're like, oh, man, I wasn't expecting that, you can add that to the list of things God never says. Oh, man, if only I had known about. No, God doesn't. Those thoughts don't even occur to God. He's never had those thoughts because he knows our thoughts are far off. He knows them well into the future, not just near, but far off. So he knows us. What does he know? He knows what we do. He knows what we think. Watch this. Verse 3, thou can pass my path. Am I lying down? He says, I know where you go. 
I, I know while you're going about your business day to day. I know when you lie down to go to sleep. I, I, he knows all of these things and are acquainted with all of my ways. Verse 4, for there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. There's not a single, no word that you've ever said, whether it be kind, whether it be harsh, whatever it may be. There's not a single word that you've ever uttered that God doesn't know it. No word that you're capable of uttering that God does not know. He, he knows you so well. In fact, in fact, we could easily say that God knows you better than you know yourself. You see, because there's a certain element of us that uh, we don't know everything about us, right? Can we all just admit we don't know everything about ourselves. We don't know everything about the internal. We don't know everything about the external. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the one good reason to have close friends and good relationships, people that are honest with you, because you know what? People outside of you see you differently than you see yourself, and that's not a bad thing. But you know what God sees? God doesn't just see what others see, and God doesn't just see what you see. God sees everything there is to see about you. We were having a conversation um, the, uh, on Saturday, Megan was involved. All right. Um, hi, Megan. All right. So, um, Saturday we were, um, took a group of our college students and our young adults, um, to a church in Ann Arbor to, um, do some work up there, a church that was restarting. Um, they started, restarted about a year ago with six people. Um, in the one o'clock service today, we had eight people. Okay. And it was very, it's very small, eight people. Um, this church started with six people, restarted about a year ago with six people. And now they're consistently having, um, having about 60 people in attendance at this church. So God's doing a work and bringing this church back to health. And so we took a group of our young adults, our college students out there to see what God is doing there, to be able to help out and be involved in some of these projects. And um, as we were uh, traveling in our van on the way back, there were about five of us in, uh, in my van, and uh, we're talking and we're having these conversations. We started talking about personality types. And so we're talking about, like, um, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs or this or that, like these personality types. How do you think? How do you see the world? How is this person different? And it's just it's an interesting thing um, to be able to perceive and be able to understand how this person views the world differently than how you view the world, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, and so as we're going through this, as we're uh, looking at this, I was kind of thinking about this, this passage. I was thinking about all these things. And you can take 15 minutes, some of them, some of them are like 30 or 40 minutes, and you can go and you can answer these questions and you can learn more about how you see the world, right? If you were to take those tests all day, every day for the rest of your life, and you spent every waking moment of your existence trying to learn more about how you see the world, how you see yourself, and just how you work, you could spend the rest of your life studying you and you wouldn't even scratch the surface to the knowledge that God has about you. The topic that you and I are the biggest experts in ourselves, we don't even come close to God's knowledge of who we are. And I think we can, I think we can prove this. How many of you guys thought there was something that would make you happy? You've ever thought, this thing could make me happy? Like four of us, good, all right. Um, it's like 7% of us, all right. So how many, we've had these thoughts like, oh, if I only have this, it would make me happy. Maybe explicitly, maybe we've had this thought beneath the surface, we haven't like vocalized that, but there's, there's a thing that can make you happy, all right? Whether it be sleep or whether it be this, whether it be that, whatever. How many of you guys, since that thing, have ever been unhappy? Oh, wow. Oh, man, most of us again, all right. Why? Because we don't know what makes us happy. No, I like to think I do. Sometimes I lie to myself and tell myself that I do, right? I know the things that I want. I want this. 
And then you get it. And you're like, oh, I'm still not as happy as I thought I would be when that happened. And it's amazing. I, I enjoy watching sports, and it's amazing the athletes, the professional top-tier athletes, that these things happen to them. We're like, I got everything I wanted, and then I realized I didn't even want any of it. Oh, I've got fame. I got all these things, and oh. But you know what the Scripture tells us? The Scripture tells us those things aren't going to fulfill us. It's almost as if God knows. Profound, right? It's almost as if God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what you need. He knows what you want because he built you to want those things that you want, those things that you need. He created you and he formed you on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. And so what we find is that here, David's saying, God, you know me. You have searched me and you know me. There's nothing that's hidden from you inside of me. But what does he say? But lo, O Lord, verse 4, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me. What does he do with this knowledge? Thou hast beset me behind and before, saying you've closed me in. You've laid thine hand upon me. This verse is speaking of direction, speaking of you've guided me as a result of this knowledge. Verse 6, such knowledge, it's too wonderful, too exciting, too, too full of awe and splendor. This is too magnificent for me. It's high. I can't attain unto it. Here's what he's saying is, I, I just, I don't understand it. I, I don't get it. As we're talking about the knowledge that God has of us, um, if, if you're anything like me, probably emotionally you kind of relate to this because intellectually, like, you can't grab it. Intellectually, like, you can't, like, wrap your arms around it. The picture, actually, that he says, when he says, I cannot attain unto it, it's a picture of trying to, uh, trying to enter into a fortress that's been sealed. He's saying, I can't, I can't get inside I see it, I can marvel at it, I can admire, I can look at it, but I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't tap into that. It's just too much for me. It's too much for me. This is the knowledge of God towards us. So we see here in this passage, David elaborates so beautifully, God knows. God knows, but not only does God know, let's go to verse number seven, what do we see? We see God sees. God sees, look at verse number seven. He asks this rhetorical question, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? This is a, this is a great question, right? And, and here, as he's looking at these things, he's praying these things, he's saying, God, where would I go from you? And I think there's an element of uh, two, two characters, two stories come to my mind uh, as I look at this, and I think there are elements of both of them in this question. Uh, the first is uh, one that we've talked about recently, who tried to go from the presence of the Lord, uh, the prophet Jonah. Uh, Jonah tried to get away from this, and Jonah learned the answer, obviously, right? He tried to run from God, and we see that Jonah, at the end of the okay, God, you, you got me. I can't go anywhere from you. You made the dry land, you made the sea. I cannot run from you. Uh, but when we come to John chapter number 6, Jesus gives a hard teaching, and then uh, a lot of his followers leave him. There's this crowds were following him. He says some things that superficially sound kind of ridiculous, and so the people who are following him with wrong motives, wrong reasons, lack of understanding, they went away. And so Jesus looks at the ones that we would refer to as the disciples, the apostles, and he says to them, he says, will you also go away? And then there's Simon Peter, and I love Simon Peter, because Simon Peter, sometimes he says things that are really, really, really deep and profound, and sometimes he says things that are stupid. Like, that's it. There's no in-between with Peter. Like, Peter's like, the man, or Peter's an idiot. Like, there's just, that's it, okay? And I feel like I relate to that. 
mostly the idiot. So Peter here gets up and he, he says, oh, Jesus. And as, as a reader, you're, you get to sit there and you'll be like, oh, no, Peter, what are you going to say? But he says this, he, del- oh, he delivers, it's so powerful, Holy Spirit just fills, oh, he speaks. And so Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, where, where would we even, who else am I going to go follow? You want me to go back to catching fish? Who am I going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. And I think that's much more what, what David is trying to portray here. saying, God, even if I wanted to run, where would I go? Even if I wanted to run, where would I go? Because, God, you see me. You see me. And this is a thing that he rejoices in. Watch this in verse number 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Uh, so he's saying, hey, if, I'm, if I ascend up, if I go down, wherever I go in between, if I'm on the mountaintop, if I'm in the valley, whatever's going on in my life, you are there. Understand this. This is not just a literal, physical thinking. That's the picture he's giving us. But understand this. When you are in your life, when you are walking through the highest points of your life, when you're looking at those days, you're just like, these are the days that just bring me so much joy. God's there in those. He sees those. When you're walking through the valleys of life, when you don't know what's coming around the next corner, when you're a little anxious, when we're a little fearful, when it's dark around us, when we've lost our bearing a little bit, God says, I'm I'm there. I'm there. In fact, watch this. He says, he says uh, again, if I dwell, um, if I take the wings of the morning, this is a, a reference to if I, if I were to go as far east as I could possibly go, or if I were to go into the uttermost parts of the sea from Israel, if I could go as far west as I could possibly go, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand, it'll hold me no matter which way I turn. And then he jumps into this picture in verse 11. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. Surely, I mean, think about that. Surely the darkness shall cover me. Have you been there in life? You just feel like you're coated in darkness. You can't see, you can't see your hand in front of your face, right? How many of you guys, how many of you guys you've, ever, you've ever been somewhere that's just so dark? I mean, it's just like, it feels like the darkness is like pressing on you. I remember, well, I remember one time that I, I stayed in a, in a, a building that didn't have any windows. Um, and the, it, was, it was kind of an old, it was at a church. It was kind of an older space. There, was, there were no windows, didn't have any night lights. I had a cell phone, but I wanted my cell phone to work the next day, so I didn't really feel like leaving it you know, on in the corner or whatever. I shut the lights off. And it was, I mean, it was as dark as you can imagine, multiple doors between outside and where I was at. And it was just, it was black. And I'd never been in this place before. And the lights were across the room. I'm just like, whose design is this? Like, who, who made this place? And so I'm in one corner of the room, and I'm kind of mapping out the room in my head, all right? And I think this was before, this was back before cell phone flashlights were really common, so my phone was not very helpful anyways, and so I was just, whatever, it's fine. I don't want to have to fish for a plug in the dark, too. And so turn the lights off, right? And then you're like, go. And you're just feeling around because you don't, I mean, you, you know where everything's at, and there's like the map in your head, and you're kind of step in, and you're going along, and you're, you're trying to make your way there. Um, I, 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 listened to, um, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I heard, I heard this story. This is a story that um, a blind man told, and I just thought it was, it was it's a funny story. I thought it was a funny story. Um, I'm not going to tell as well as he did, but he comes to the hotel room. He traveled a lot. He speaks, um, and this, this blind man 
um, comes into a hotel room, kind of gets a feel, gets a layout for the room, um, plugs his phone in beside the bed. He's waiting for a phone call from his wife. Um, and so he plugs the phone in, and then he goes to the restroom. And then when he leaves the restroom, um, he begins to kind of move around the room, and he hears his phone start to ring, right? And so he starts to try to figure out, okay, get back to the phone, and so he goes, kind of retraces the map in his head so he doesn't run into anything in the middle of the floor, and so he kind of traces the map. The phone stops ringing, he doesn't get to his phone, and he's like, okay, I'll, go, I'll find it, I'll call her back. And so he keeps over and over and over again making a circle, and he's like, I can't find my phone. In fact, this doesn't feel familiar, like this doesn't seem familiar at all. He's just really disoriented. He keeps going around and around and around in a circle until eventually he realized that he was staying in a suite that had two bedrooms, and he had plugged his phone in in one bedroom, and then after coming out of the bathroom, went into the other one. And so he's in the totally wrong room, but he's blind. He can't see. So he's just groping around in the darkness, and he has no idea where he's going. God's never been like that. You and I, it's funny because we're like, okay, I get it. Like, you're the dumb one this time, but I've, we've done it. God's never had those moments. Darkness is a great metaphor for when we feel confused, when we feel a little bit unmoored. We, we don't know where we're supposed to be going. We're... We're a little unsecured, uh, and darkness is, I mean, darkness is one of those things that, I mean, how many of you are, be honest here, okay, safe place, uh, how many of you are afraid of the dark? Afraid of the dark. Thank you, Natalia, most honest person in the room. Oh, Jen, sorry, I saw, I saw it on the way down, all right. Um, but there are those, even as adults, like we're a little unsettled by just absolute darkness. Why? Because darkness hides stuff. And so it's not like the darkness just inherently that's a little bit uncomfortable. It's what's in the darkness that actually makes us uncomfortable, right? Like, it's not just like the fact that it's black. It's like what's sitting in the black that I can't see. Well, what we find here in this passage is we see this. Watch. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. To who? To David? Is David going to see light and David going to be like, oh, that's light? No, no, no. To God, this is light. Watch here in verse number 12. The darkness hides not from thee. The darkness can't hide stuff from you, God. Even the things when I look out and I say, I don't know how I'm going to get from here to here. God, I don't know where I'm at. I feel so lost just emotionally. I'm overwhelmed. I'm kind of, I'm just groping my way through this, trying not to mess anything up too bad. God, I don't know where I'm supposed to go from here. God, those dark places don't hide anything from you. You see it just like it's broad daylight. You're not caught off guard. You don't not see these things. The night shines as the day in verse number 12. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You know what he's saying? He's saying even darkness isn't dark to you. There's nothing that hides from God. So you see, as we're looking at God, we see first that God knows. Then we see that God sees. Look at verse number 13. He continues and he says this. For thou hast possessed my reins, is what he says in the King James. Thou hast possessed my reins. This is a really interesting phrase. Um, a lot of versions translate this differently. Uh, but here's, here's the literal interpretation. Here's what this means. Uh, the reins is actually, it's a really great Old English reference. It does, it's not talking about like the reins of a horse or something like that. In fact, it's the same word that's used to describe our renal system. All right? You know what he's saying? Saying, you've possessed, you've formed my kidneys. Isn't that great? Uh, he says, you formed my kidneys. What is he talking about when he says, what, what does our kidneys have to do with any of this? Uh, well, just like you and I might say, my heart, 
this, uh, you know, with all, I love someone with all my heart, right? Well, in the times that this was written, um, different organs would be used kind of as the seat of our emotions. And so it's a picture saying, you've, you've formed my feelings. You formed the way that I feel, the way that I perceive, the way that I understand. From the very beginning, you knew these things. And watch what he says here in the end of this verse. Thou hast covered me. Uh, talking of protection and care for. You've cared for me in my mother's womb. As we look into this third segment of Psalm 139, this third trait that David is praising God for, he says, God, you know, God, you see, God, you care. God, you care. God knows, God sees, God cares. But when I say cares, understand this. I'm not just speaking of a passive caring. I'm not saying God cares for you like I care about insert sports team here. Okay? That's not how God cares for you and for me. He's not just a fan of yours and he's saying, oh, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and hope that you do well with your life. No. God cares for you much more like I would say I care for my children. It's an active care. It means that he's involved. He is there. He is day-to-day, hands-on, not hands-off, not far away. No, he is on top of you, understanding, seeing, knowing you. And what does he say? You've cared for me, even in my mother's womb, even before I was ever born, before I was formed. And you and I, uh, like for me, I was spoiled, all four of my children, uh, because they're all fairly young. We had ultrasounds. We were able to see them uh, before they were born. We were able to find out gender and plan and do all that stuff, because I'm type A, you know, I'm like, I want to know these things. Don't surprise me. You know, and so you know, we can do all that stuff, and it's so cool to be able to watch and to see them kind of grow and form and develop. Well, David's living in a day and age that like ultrasound is like science fiction for them, right? Like they don't, there's, there's, they don't even understand like, aren't you doing what with what? Like that doesn't make any sense. It's so far beyond what they're understanding. And so when you're looking at, hey, the secret places uh, when the, this, this life is being formed, he's saying, God, you knew. God, you knew. You understood these things. Verse 14, I will praise you. This is my response to you. I'm going to praise you because I'm fearfully, understand in the details, carefully, fearfully, there was not a detail that God left out. And yet at the same time, I am wonderfully, so holistically, the greater part of me, I'm wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows right well. And understand this. I think it's important here that David doesn't write, my soul feels right well because I don't think as David's writing this that his soul felt Right. I don't think that David was feeling that these things were true. What does he say? He says, I I know these things to be true. I know these things to be true. That he was reminding himself of through this prayer to God. But what what does he say? He says, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought inside the lowest parts of the earth. He's saying the parts that are just most hidden, the most hard to see, the parts that we, we don't understand these things, and yet that's where I was formed, and you saw me even then. And then he goes and he uses, verse number 16, he uses a really, really interesting word here. He says, thine eyes did see my substance being yet unperfect. Two interesting words there, in fact. Uh, you see, substance, what is he talking about? What is it substance? Being unperfect. When he says substance, this is actually a word that's only used one time in the entire Bible, this word substance. So it's unique. And here's, here's what it means. Uh, the closest word we have to it is it's an embryo. 
This is a newly formed conception. When I was just a few cells, when I was just the very beginning of my life, even before I had arms and legs and a heart and a mind, even before all of those things began to develop in me, God, you knew me. God, you saw me. God, you cared for me. Understand this, that while obviously life is precious, what, what's, if we had to look at ourselves, when were we the least significant, right? No one knew anything about us at that point in life. No one knew if we have to be critical, self-facing. That's what David's saying. No one knew anything about us at that point of our life. He's saying, this is before my mother even realized that I existed. God, you saw me. God, you, you knew me. God, you cared for me. And watch, he presses deeper into this. He says, and in thy book, all my members were written. He said, even before I was, even while I was unformed, even while I was unperfect, even while I was incomplete in person, I existed in plan. You knew I was coming. You knew who I was. Everything that I am, it was written in your books. You saw these things. You cared for these things. Which, watch this, the end of verse 16, which in continuance were fashioned. You kept creating. You kept fashioning me and molding me and putting me together. When as yet there was none of these, none, none of me existed. Just this is all I was. Nothing that you actually see today, but, but God, you cared. Even when, even when no one else even knew that I was here, even when no one else e even, even understood my existence, you cared. You understand that? God's care for you is not dependent on anyone else knowing you're there, anyone else, much less anyone else's opinion of. God's care for you transcends all of those things. God has cared for you since before your parents knew that you existed. God has cared for you since before you were born. God has cared for you further than your memory can go, further than your generations and your genealogies and your family. God, is, God, God knows, God sees, and God cares. And what does he do in response to this? Verse 17, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God, how, how magnificent are all these thoughts that you have towards me? He says, the, the sum here, I mean, mathematically, what's the sum? If you were to add all these things together, how great is that number? He, he answers this, verse 18, if I should count them, they're more in number than the sand. If I were to go and I were to say, okay, here's a thought that God has had about me, and here's a thought that God has had about me, and here's a thought that's got, you might as well go count sand, right? Good luck with that. Let me know when you've finished, right? I'm not expecting a call this lifetime. I mean, imagine if, if, if we went outside into the parking lot and I said, hey guys, team project, what do you think? Let's count all the snowflakes in our parking lot. Who's in? All right? None of you? Oh, I thought you were going to raise your hand, Reuben. No. You're like, no, that's a fool's errand. Like, that's ridiculous. And that's what David's saying here. This isn't like an if-then statement, right? This is like an if-no-way statement. He's like, if I, were to count, if, I, if I were to count all of your thoughts you have towards me, then I'd come up, oh, man, it'd be like counting the sand of the sea. I'm not, there's, it doesn't even make sense. Go make up some number and, and then that's it, okay? Because you can't assign a label to this. And understand this, this is God's thoughts about David. Not humankind, David. You know how many times God's thought about you? more than you've thought about you, and his thoughts are better about you and truer about you. 
and more meaningful about you. Understand that if you were to try to take and compile all the time, God has thought about you more than you've been alive, right? Because God, from eternity past, eternity future, being all-knowing, having all this understanding, being able to see all and understand all, God's not limited the way that you and I are limited. And yet, in the middle of all of this, God knows you, God sees you, God cares for you. This sounds, at the end of this, if we're in our right mind, this sounds almost too good to be true, right? I think David understands that as he finishes up verse number 18. He says this, when I awake, I'm still with thee. He's saying, I didn't, it's not like I dreamed this thing up, and then the next day you're like, oh, man, that was weird. I mean, how many of you guys ever had a dream that, you know, you had a nice, really, really nice car, really nice house or something like that, and you're like, oh, man, wow, what a dream. And then you wake up and you're like, and it's gone, right? That's not true with God. You don't just snap out of it and then he ceases to exist. No. This is reality. This is truth. There, there is no, this isn't going to go away. This isn't going to flee away. And watch David here. When, when he comes against those, there are those that, that come up in opposition to God. Watch verses 19 to 22. This is kind of a different tone from the rest of the passage. And here's why. Here's why I believe. Just, let's read through it. Let me explain this. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. Why? For they speak against thee wickedly. So David's going to call these men his, his enemies. We talked about, you know, what happens when God loves your enemies a couple weeks ago. David's calling these people his enemies. Why? Because they spoke evil of David? Because they said, oh, that David, he's kind of a not great king. Oh, David this, David that. Did, is this what David is being up in arms about? No. I mean, if David was in his right mind, he was probably thinking, yeah, if that happens, they're probably right. Why is David getting worked up here? He's saying, they speak evil against you, God. They speak wickedly against you. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. They think you're some kind of a joke. They think you're, they speak these evil things of you. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? Saying, God, how could they? How could they? You're the God that knows. You're the God that sees. You're the God that cares. How could they behave this way? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And David says, I don't even, it makes me so angry. How do these people behave this way as if you're not even there? As if there's a God that's worth serving that's better than you are. That, it, it, does, it, it blows David's mind that these people would even exist. It outrages. what are they thinking? I want nothing to do with those people. But watch what he does as he comes back, as he comes back in, as the side closes and he concludes this chapter. What does he say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Wait a second. In, in this chapter, has God searched him? In this chapter, has God searched him? He says, know my heart. In this chapter, has God known his heart? What does verse 1 say? O oh Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, please keep searching. God, please keep knowing me. God, don't change the way that you behave, the way that you act towards me. Understand here, as David's writing this, it's likely David's going through some kind of a, a crisis in himself. But where these are some strong emotions that he's come and he's brought up here. And he's saying, hey, God, please, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, even if I don't feel it, keep doing it. 
Keep searching me. Keep knowing me. Try me. Know my thoughts. God, I want you to know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. When he speaks of the wicked way, here's, here's what he's speaking of. We can take 24, the both halves of this verse, kind of push these two together, kind of get an understanding of one with the other. See, he says, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see what he's doing here is he's contrasting the wicked way with being led. He's saying, God, see if there's any way where I don't want to be led. God, see if there's anything that I don't want to follow you in. God, see if anything's going on, if anything's taking place, where I am resisting you. Because understand this, we have a God that knows, we have a God that sees, we have a God that cares. Because of these things, because of these reasons, we have a God that's worthy of being trusted. We have a God that's worthy of being trusted. Understand, if we had a God who knew but knew us, knew what we liked, disliked, knew who we are, but didn't see us, maybe he even cared for us, but he didn't really know where we were at. A, a God that doesn't follow and keep up with our lives. You know what, that's, not, that's probably not a God worth trusting, a God worth following. If you plug in your GPS and your GPS says, oh, I don't know where you're at, but I'll give you directions, you're going to say, that's, like, that's ludicrous, right? You don't see me. You can't find me. Why would, you, why would I want to follow you? Well, that's not this God. If you had a God that sees you and that cares for you, but he doesn't know you, well, that's, I'm, not, I'm different than that person is, but you don't know me. Like you say you care about me, but you, you don't even know me. If you have a God that knows and sees and doesn't care, it's just as dangerous, Right? That's, that's the gods that heathens have worshipped for, you know, for millennia, right? These are the gods of the idols that the Israelites were pressing back against. This is a god that you supposedly sees and knows but doesn't care, right? No, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. No one would want to follow that. If you had a leader that saw all and knew all but didn't care about you, you'd be like, ah, this is, this is a little disturbing, right? I'm out of here. But instead, what do we have? We have a god that knows a God that sees, and a God that cares. And understand this. This isn't just speaking day-to-day. This is speaking uh, holistically. This is speaking spiritually. Understand this, that God knew our hearts. He saw the wickedness of our hearts, and he cared enough to deliver us from that wickedness, did he not? Even through the demonstration of his love through his son, Jesus Christ. God commended his love toward us. He demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God knew our greatest problem was sin. He watched as it manifested itself in us over and over and over again, but he cared too much to leave us in that. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. Yeah, he died on the cross, was rose again on our behalf. And so we have a God who knows, who sees, who cares for us pictured beautifully in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But understand this too. As we talk about these three spaces, these three actually really correlate beautifully with three of the greatest needs that we have inside of us. You see, this is a very, it's very emotional psalm. Uh, most of the psalms are very emotional. It's very, very tied in with how we feel and how we perceive things. Um, emotionally speaking, there, there are, I believe, three primary needs 
that you and I, we, we all have them. Uh, these three primary needs are, are going to be our security or our safety. How many of you guys like to be safe? Right? We like to feel safe. Even if, we're, we, even if, even if I'm unsafe, I want to feel safe, right? Um, like I want to I have some comfort. I, I want to, whether it be financially, whether it be physically, whatever it may be, I want to I be safe. Relationally, I want to be safe. Uh, if, if I have to go into a risky situation or a dangerous situation, it better be for a good reason, right? We, be, we, want, we want safety. Uh, we also want some significance. Most of us would not be content if no one else on the planet knew we existed, right? Uh, that's a kind of it would be a depressing thought to think if you got up tomorrow and no one realized you were gone. And that's a sad thing, right? We, we want significance. We want people to think that we're valuable, that we have good ideas. If someone you spent time with was always like, oh, that's a terrible idea to everything you said, you probably wouldn't spend time with that person, right? Like, this, we all want some degree of this. And then we all want to be cared for. We all want to be loved. Uh, this, if you feel unloved, sometimes even feeling unloved can make us feel unlovable. And it can lead to discouragement, anxiety, depression. It can, it, it's an emotional need that we have to have. Well, you know, when we go to the New Testament, uh, we see Paul, Paul says this really, really interesting phrase. Uh, he says, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, right? What we sometimes do with this verse is we crush this verse down and we say, all right, God's going to make sure that you have food and God's going to make sure that you have clothes and God's going to make sure that you probably have a house and that you're going to be able to be somewhere warm when it snows and does what it's doing tonight, Right? But what about those needs? What about my need to be safe? What about my need to be uh, significant? What about my need to be loved and cared for? Well, you want, God says, hey, you know what? And David even here is expressing, he says, you know what? I want to be significant. You know me. You know me. Even if no one else knows my name, God, the creator of the universe, knows me. You know what? I feel unsafe. I feel like... Things aren't going my way. I feel, I feel threatened, whether it be financially. I feel like, oh, man, I wish my bank account were doing a little bit better. Whether it be relationally, I wish this relationship was, was not as, as dicey as it can be. Uh, maybe you feel, I, I, whatever it may be, unsafe. God says, hey, 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 I see you. I see you. Hey, hey you're, no, I, I know, I know you. I know you have significance. You have value. I see you, okay? You're not, you're not in the darkness. You might feel like you're in the darkness, but I know exactly where you are. And then David's coming to this and he's saying, God, there are times I, I just, I feel unloved. Maybe I feel unlovable. I feel like no one wants anything to do with me. God, I feel like I've just, I've just messed this up and messed this up and messed this up. He said, wait, but God, you care for me. You care for me. You are all of these things to me. Even when those around me, even when they fail me, and they will, and they do. Even when my job is not as fulfilling as I want it to be, even when my financial situation is not what it, I need to be, even when someone that I care about deeply, even when, when they get sick and I just feel so helpless and I feel so, I feel so distant and I, feel, I, I, just, I don't know where to turn, I don't know what to do, I don't know what's happening here. God says, hey, 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 I know you, I know you, I, I see you, you're not, you're not lost, you're not lost. You might feel lost, but I see you and I, I care for you. I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't misplaced you. You haven't wandered off of my map. You haven't gone somewhere that I'm not able to access you. And understand, I understand the days can be long and they can be dark and they can be hard. I understand the days can be good and they can be wonderful and they can be these mountaintops. I get that. God, I understand that. He, understand this. He, he's there 
no matter what it may be. And this is why at the end of all of this, David can say this. Watch, watch how he concludes. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, you know. God, you see. God, you care. I can trust you. I can trust you. I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what fears you have, what concerns you have, which of these spaces you're feeling threatened in or you're feeling pressed in on. I don't know what's making you anxious. I don't know what's keeping you up at night. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know those things in all of your lives. But understand this. God knows. God sees those things. And God cares. You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you 